0: From the studio on the University of Georgia campus, this is Unscripted. I'm your host, Alan Flurry. On each episode of Unscripted, I'll be talking with scholars, artists, journalists, and leaders from all corners of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, as well as guest speakers and lecturers to the UGA campus. Hans Wartenberg is a professor emeritus of philosophy at Mount Holyoke College who works at the intersection between philosophy and popular culture. The author of Big Ideas for Little Kids, Teaching Philosophy Through Children's Literature, and A Sneech is a Sneech and Other Philosophical Discoveries, Finding Wisdom in Children's Literature, Wartenberg maintains a popular website for teaching children philosophy and teaches an innovative course in which his students teach philosophy to elementary school children. Thomas Wurtenberg, welcome to Unscripted.
1: Oh, Thanks, Alan. It's great to be here.
0: When you talk about using classic children's books to raise philosophical questions, are you positing these stories in the context of philosophy, or were they written that way to begin with?
1: The amazing thing about a great deal of children's literature is that it actually raises philosophical issues. And so what we do uh, with the kids is we will read them a story and then we'll ask them um, a question about the narrative that they've just heard that brings to the fore some philosophical issue that's in one of the stories or books. So it's not—I don't think it's anything that we're imposing on the books. I think the books are just written that way. I mean, obviously the books are written for kids and to entertain them, and, and the pictures are obviously play an important role in that. But the uh, the fact is that kids are actually interested in philosophical issues, and a lot of the great children's book writers, I think realize that at some level. I mean, they don't specifically acknowledge that the kids are interested in philosophy. But the issues that they raise are clearly philosophical. And so it's very easy to get a discussion going with children about those issues.
0: What are some of those issues?
1: Well, for example, Arnold LaBelle's story, Dragons and Giants. It's one of the uh, Frog and Toad stories, which are great classics. It's a story about the nature of bravery. Frog and Toad are reading a book. In which, you know, knights in shining armor are fighting dragons and giants, and um, Toad says they're brave because they don't—they're not scared—and so that initiates a sort of little quest that Frog and Toad go on to see if they're brave too. Ah. And so then you can just ask kids questions about bravery, and then move from the story to more abstract questions about what makes a person brave and why is bra- is bravery a good thing or
0: not. Because it's really close to the question of what is bravery.
1: Right. Yeah. And actually, um, in the story, uh, Toad puts forward not a definition of bravery, but a sort of necessary condition for bravery. And then you can get the kids to see that what he says is wrong. Mm -hmm. You don't don't force him to see that, but you ask them to think about it. And that usually emerges that they wind up being critical of what Toad has said in the story.
0: Oh, because they already understand the dynamic on some level.
1: Yes, yeah so I think in a lot of in a lot of the stories that we read, what we're doing is we're trying to bring to consciousness intuitions or ideas that the kids already have They may not have been able to wouldn't have been able to express them in the absence of the discussions that we have, but we're relying on their own the knowledge that they already have
0: mm-hmm. um like many of the best things seem obvious when they're pointed out, and this feels like another one of them. And some books seem to lend themselves more obviously to this this uh, context. I'm thinking of the Lorax, right, or, or even more explicitly um, the uh, the takeoff on Winnie the Pooh, the Tao of Pooh, right, and th- which are more explicit about their connection. I'm sure there are just dozens of books that comport themselves. Thus. Yeah,
1: actually, you mentioned that I have this website. Um, we've got over 150 books on it. Um, most of the content is generated by students, uh, mostly my own students, but also students that other people. Uh, in other people's classes. People have actually mimicked my course, right, that they've, they've uh, in their own college or university, they give a course that's based on the model that I describe in, in that book that you mentioned, Big Ideas for Little Kids. And then I've suggested that if they have, if they want to, their students can put up what I call book modules, sort of mm-hmm. lesson plans for teaching stories. And so we have over 150 of them. So there's, and they're, they're widely different. There are all sorts of um, stories that are on the website. Um, you mentioned Dr. Seuss; he's one of the great ones. Um, and in fact, a book like *The Lorax* is a little problematic because it's too opinionated. You know, <laughs> it's like it's like some of the fairy tales where, like, there's a message that the the person's trying to get across. And when the person's trying to get across the message, I'm less excited about using a book like that. I like books that problematize a concept. Mm. Like I just meant *Dragons and Giants* problematizes what is bravery, mm-hmm. and it doesn't give you an answer. So the kids have to think for themselves. And we really want them to have a discussion in which they have um, different opinions about something so that they can talk with one another, present reasons for their views, think about whether maybe they no longer believe what they thought they believed, and really have the experience of doing philosophy. Right. And, and that's the real goal of the whole program, is not to teach them philosophy, but to have them experience what, the joy, actually, of doing philosophy because people who are philosophers really enjoy the activity. And then, of course, once you enjoy the activity, you have to learn more to keep doing it. But the initial part is really just experiencing uh, what it is to have a philosophical discussion.
0: Which feels really good oftentimes, and and children, I guess, are figuring out their opinions, how they feel about certain things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the um, interesting things for me was um, in relationship to my own son is just listening to him and, and suddenly noticing when he was three or four years old that he was starting to ask questions that were recognizable as philosophical questions. And they were the sorts of questions that the very early Greek philosophers asked, there, the pre-Socratics they're called. Mm-hmm. And you know, you just start realizing that those philosophers were encountering a world that had features that didn't make a lot of sense to them. And they started thinking about them and trying, trying to come up with answers. And the very same thing's happening to young kids, right? That they're they encounter a world that doesn't make sense in lots of ways. And so they start asking questions, wondering. And what we can do, and what I try to do in this course and in my work more generally, is to really validate that process of questioning and the wondering that's going on in their brains as they're chugging along trying to figure out why things work the way they do, and to say, you're not weird when you think about these questions, because a lot of times kids think, I'm the only one who's wondered about this strange question. Maybe I'm just a weirdo, and say, no, no, you're not weird. You're a philosopher. Maybe all philosophers are weird, but if so, you're just one of us, right? You're part of a group.
0: Right. Yeah, the validation is an interesting point. Do you think we short circuit that that curiosity a bit too early
1: oh yeah i think so i think um well you know that part of it's just really natural so like a kids kids are just always i think of those little why machines right they're just (laughs) always asking why 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 and you as an adult you know you want to go shopping you want the kid to sit in the car seat and they're sort of saying why is the sky blue or um why do you make why do you get to tell me what to do it's not fair i should get to tell you what to do and it's like I don't really want to have a discussion of fairness right now. I want you to sit in the car seat because we have to go shopping for dinner and we're not going to have any food for dinner if we don't do this. And so you sort of basically um, adults often have agendas and I mean, they're realistic and necessary agendas, but what tends to happen is that kids get shut down. Mm -hmm. And when that happens too often, then I think kids lose their natural curiosity that they have and they start thinking that they shouldn't be wondering about the things that they're wondering about. And we're trying to, Reverse that to sort of say, it's great, you can't do it all the time, but, you know, we have philosophy class and basically that's a perfect time to ask questions and to think. And we want you to do that because that's what this is all about.
0: And kids are naturally predisposed to the fundamental questions.
1: They are. I think, you know, adults too often think the world makes sense and lots of features of the world that are really puzzling. And philosophers are sort of grown-up children, right? They're still puzzling about these things, and they're asking about them and trying to figure out why things are the way that they are. Mm-hmm. And kids naturally have those very same questions. Um, you know, I mentioned fairness. I mean, that's something that comes up all the time with kids. Um,
0: Such an abstraction.
1: Right, but in, in particular context, they say, that's not fair. Yeah, it's very clear
0: at the same time.
1: And then you want to ask them, well, what makes it not fair? Why do you think it's not fair? And, you know, you can really have great conversations. Uh, sure. And I'm sure all parents do with their kids some of the time. <laughs> but um, one of the nice things that we try to do is it's not, it's not supposed to be the teacher or the facilitator who is having these interactions so much as getting the kids to talk to one another, mm-hmm. which is another thing that we really try to do. In the field, I talk about a community of inquiry, and the idea is to turn a classroom into a real community in which the children start looking towards the other children as participants in an ongoing inquiry about these big questions that they have. And that really is a change from the traditional classroom in which basically there's the teacher who's at the front of the class who tells the kids certain things and then the kids raise their hands. Because they want the teacher's attention, and each mm. of the kids is trying to talk to the teacher, and there's very little interaction between the children. And we really try to counter that and to say that the. I mean, I tell my students, you can't move the conversation forward by telling the kids what you think. What you'd want to do is try to get the kids to say what they think and to have them talk to one another and explain why they think what they think.
0: Are the, are your students? Are they? Um... Are they uh, going to be philosophers or are they going to be teachers? Are you teaching them how to teach?
1: It's it's a mix. Yeah, mm-hmm. I am teaching them how to teach. But um, you know, I had I had, I had hoped that uh, I would get like a real nice mix between philosophy students and education students because the education students would know some of the uh, techniques for managing a classroom, and the philosophy students would have a good background in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And ideally, uh, that's how it would work. But you know, you just have to take the students who come to your classes the way that they are. And so I've had all sorts of um, different kids but but uh, and with different backgrounds. But uh, the ones who really get interested in this then tend to go into education, partly because philosophy itself is not exactly the most receptive discipline for philosophy for children. There are philosophers who think, uh, although it's changing, uh, philosophers used to think that this was really sort of an odd side show in philosophy and they didn't really if you're trying to go to graduate school and then get a job you really it's very difficult if what you want to say is my i'm going to specialize in philosophy for children you know you have to specialize in a more traditional area yeah because philosophy is inherently in the u.s anyway a conservative type discipline yeah so a lot of the st- my students who are, you know, my best students will often go into education departments. And then, of course, I lose control of them. <laughs> <laughs> education departments tend not to uh, support philosophy itself that well. So, but some of them wind up doing this um, and continuing to do it, that mm-hmm. they have to sort of, you know, navigate their own paths. Um, and I try to help them as best as I can. Having said all that, I should say that recently philosophy departments have been much more open to um, what we call now pre-college philosophy because they want to expand uh, the places where philosophy PhDs can actually
0: teach. Sure, makes sense.
1: Uh, you know, there's a tough job market. And so uh, particularly high schools, I think, is a good sort of second market for philosophy PhDs. And because of that, they've developed some programs. Some of the universities have developed programs with philosophy for children. That's That's been very helpful. Um, and, and I think in addition, you know, the fact that I, I mean, I, I developed this course, and then other people have sort of started using it, and you sort of—it's sort of, it's sort of an underground movement, and then the philosophy establishment notices it, mm-hmm. and they realize. Uh, actually, I can just say that you know, when I retired, um, Mount Holyoke didn't continue the course, but there were people at the University of Massachusetts, which is part of a consortium of five schools that Mount Holyoke's part of, uh, UMass. Uh, Got interested in it, and to my amazement, a lot of the graduate students really wanted to do this and enjoyed it, and and did it, you know, semester after semester. And they told me that it was just such a joy teaching the kids that they were so enthusiastic that they found it a real. uh, They found it sort of rekindled their enthusiasm for teaching because they saw that you could make a difference in the lives of the people that you were teaching. And when you're teaching a sort of required course, you TAing for some professor in this three hundred person course, you get a section, and the kids are basically, the students are basically bored. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's very hard to get them excited. And so I think the UMass graduate students thought this is just so wonderful because it really helps me remember why I went into philosophy in the first place.
0: Because we really don't introduce philosophy at the secondary level.
1: We don't. There's there's um, you know, th- what they used to say is that there were some private schools that had philosophy programs, some parochial schools <laughs> where they read Thomas Aquinas and right, know, right. selected texts. Yeah. Um, and then some of the very, um, how shall I say, the, the, the public schools in, in very rich suburbs. Like I had a friend uh, who taught in uh, one of the Chicago suburbs and he taught philosophy for many years there. Um, but it has to be a... a A public school that's well enough funded sure yeah that they think it was a good idea to teach philosophy and actually I don't know why his school decided it was a good idea maybe it was just his initiative right that he wanted to teach it and he convinced the principal and then kids you know the students would come to his classes and enjoy them yeah and um, it gave them a sort of leg up when they applied to college well that's what
0: I was getting at because it it really um, it seems like it might be um, an, an enrichment activity but in fact, it threads through every every discipline.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's how we try to justify this. We sort of, we say that, um, I mean, philosophy has its own specific questions that it asks, but the techniques that you use and you learn in studying philosophy are techniques that apply to everything. Mm-hmm. So, for example, being able to isolate an argument. You know, if you're reading sociology or political science or virtually anything, you really have to know how to do that. And... Philosophy emphasizes that in a way that no other discipline does, but it, it, it applies, it's, it's applicable sort of across the board. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, you know, I think it's a great subject for students to study independently of what they actually want to do eventually as a
0: career. Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. More than 650 faculty members provide instruction in every classical discipline and all branches of empirical inquiry. Critical thinking skills from languages and literature to the biological sciences build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to be informed, engaged citizens. For more on the Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu. Welcome back to Unscripted. I'm speaking with Thomas Wartenberg, author of Big Ideas for Little Kids, Teaching Philosophy Through Children's Literature. And you mentioned parents earlier, um, and a lot of our first experiences with books are picture books, right? which lend themselves to these higher order subjects like aesthetics, ethics, metaphysics even. Yeah.
1: It's once you start looking at it and start thinking about picture books as something other than soporific for your kids. Right. Um, you start realizing that they have content that's fantastically interesting and that can uh, be great for anyone to think about. Um, So after I've been doing this for quite a while, um, I was, Mount Holyoke introduced a new requirement and I had to teach an intro philosophy class and I hadn't done that for a while. And I didn't want to teach the sort of same old intro class that I taught many times before. And so I thought, I wonder if I could teach a course using picture books to my college students. And so I devised a course where we had these two-week units, and the first part of which was I read them a picture book, and we discussed it, the issues in it, you know, the philosophical issues. And what was amazing to me is how excited the kids got, the students got, having discussions about philosophical issues that were gender- generated by picture books, and then I made them, you know, Write down their position on these topics, and after that, we started. We would read a, a philosophy essay on the same topic, and mm-hmm. I would make them rewrite their papers and incorporate the ideas from those um, articles that they read. But I found that 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 college students are are you can make the discussions that they have much richer if you start them not by having them read a philosophy text that they have trouble understanding. But take a picture book that raises a question and just say, well, what do you think about this question? Mm-hmm. And then they 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 actually go much deeper in terms of their own thought processes when well, they're not intimidated by having Aristotle.
0: Right. That's what I was wondering. It's just the intimidation factor probably to oh, yeah. some
1: extent. Yeah. So if you, ha- if you have to read Aristotle about <laughs> courage and then say, what do you think makes up courage? Like, you know, they're like, I can't understand this book. and How do you expect me to tell you what I think courage is? I have to see what Aristotle says and it becomes – Something very different. It's funny when I first started, uh, I had the idea of teaching the course, and it got announced. One of my students was super excited because she really said, "I can't wait to teach little kids what Aristotle had to say." <laughs> and I said to her, "Well, I'm sorry, but listen, you're not allowed to use the word Aristotle yeah. at all." Yeah. And she actually got very depressed, and she thought, "Well, what is this all about?" And then you know, but she took my class, and she went in, and then she told me after the class was over that she had actually lost track of what it was that got her interested in philosophy in the first place. She'd had to take so many courses in which the real issue was figure out what Aristotle said, figure out what Kant said, You mm. know, read these other things, that she'd lost touch with the fact that she what she liked about philosophy was just thinking about big ideas, big questions. Yeah. And when we, she worked with the kids with the picture books, she was constrained to just do that, and the kids actually helped her remember... What it was that attracted her to philosophy in the first place, and she wound up really enjoying the course, and I guess rediscovering the pleasure of philosophy for herself.
0: Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a pre-mystified with the terminology, right? It, because the kids don't have any problem understanding these, so that they, they're willing to they, try.
1: They are, yeah. You know, not, no names like Aristotle, and no problems right. like <laughs> the problem of other mind or skepticism. We just yeah. talk about the issue without imposing a label
0: which does remind me of um, uh, just the question I was wondering if the discussion indeed can rise to existentialism or ontology epistemology these other ideas or is there a does it top out somewhere
1: no I mean I think there's there's no there's no upper bound Uh, we start out with a book and the book usually has a particular narrative so you ask a question like I was saying uh, the story about frog and toad and bravery we might start out saying so do you think Frog and Toad were brave at the end of the story? I mean, basically they're back in Toad's house shaking with fear, right? And yeah. so I say, So are they brave or are they scared? And are those things incompatible? But after you first start about how are Frog and Toad feeling, you're going to move up and you're going to ask them, well, as I just said, do you think being scared is incompatible with being brave? And then you, you know, and then that's getting you into thinking about what's the nature of bravery and what are the characteristics of bravery. And you can go as high to as high a level as the kids as you need time, mm-hmm. but as high a level as possible. So you can ask them: So is bravery a good thing? Do you think everybody should be brave? Is it important that we sort of foster bravery as a character trait in people? You know, and you can get into questions of education. I mean, you can. You, there's there's really no limit once you just start thinking about the philosophical issues. That's why it's important for the facilitators to have some knowledge of the philosophical issues so that they're able to start with a story but sort of see where it can lead as you get more and more abstract and enter into the field of philosophy. Mm -hmm. They don't have to know, know specifically who said what, but they do have to be able to recognize when a child's comment is philosophically significant and how they might use that to make the discussion a little more abstract and philosophical and not stick to the specifics of a book's narrative
0: how do parents react to this introduction <laughs> of these ideas in a classroom
1: well it's very funny i remember <laughs> um when i first started doing this i was i, I uh decided to do it in my son's uh, elementary school just as, as he was entering elementary school and it took a while, but I got some teachers who were interested, and then the parents heard that there was going to be philosophy, and they all sort of started saying. Actually, they all said the same thing, which I thought was very funny. They look at me and they say, "Oh, that's so great! What are you going to do?" Right? <laughs> but they themselves had no idea of like what would it. How do you teach philosophy to six-year-olds? You know? <laughs> um, so the parents, I, I think they liked the idea because it sounded very cool. Sure, and, you know, sort of. I guess, sort of esoteric that their six-year-old kid was going to be studying philosophy. But then, of course, they themselves probably had very little idea what philosophy was, and they couldn't really understand what we were doing. And then one time I was working in New Zealand. Um, I had a Fulbright uh, to go teach philosophy in, in a school there. And I taught two groups. One where the, they divide the um, elementary schools into sort of lower school and upper school. And so I, the upper school kids wanted to have like a a day where their parents an evening where their parents came and watched a philosophy discussion hmm. And I was very nervous right I thought these kids are going to shut down yeah right it, their parents are there it turned out the exact opposite. the kids were determined to show the parents how smart they were. Wow And so we had this unbelievable discussion and the parents afterwards came up and they just said, Oh my God! I can't believe that the kids are actually able to have this discussion. I mean, they weren't six-year-olds, right? We're talking about ten to twelve-year-olds, mm-hmm. but they had these they had these great discussions, and uh, often in they went in directions I had no idea that they would go in. But the kids really were so pleased that they could impress their parents, and so that really surprised me. And then the parents, on the other hand, were themselves surprised that the kids were so articulate and able to have such a great discussion about very, you know, abstract. Uh, ideas that they were thrilled and they just wanted more of this to happen at the school and now the school actually teaches philosophy in all the grades
0: mm-hmm. it should tell us something right when you see that lack of inhibition on the part of children now does it change when the kids are say six and ten to when they're 14 and 17?
1: yeah so I mean um, one of the things that we think about a lot is what happens to kids in the course of their educations because young kids, pretty universally interested in philosophical questions, and that sort of starts tailing off at some point. And obviously kids start becoming much more concerned about whether other people think about them as they get older.
0: Self-awareness rises in, yeah.
1: Self-awareness, and then also gender. You know, they mm-hmm. start, well, it's not always gender, but that's dating issues. Yeah, yeah,
0: sexuality large, writ large, yeah.
1: And so they, um, that sort of starts to inhibit them some of the time. And unfortunately, our educational system is built to sort of support that inhibition. And so I don't know how much of it could be counteracted if we actually had a genuine philosophical culture in a school mm-hmm. that made kids interested in philosophical discussions and whether that's a could sort of counteract these other factors where they're worried like if I say this and my good friend Susie doesn't agree with me is that a problem Mm -hmm. I mean when I was working with these 12 year old kids they didn't care Yeah, (laughs) I mean there's one kid I remember because we'd go around at the end uh, one of the things I do at the end is I want to make sure everybody's had a chance to speak Mm so I sort of say well you have a chance now to say something you can pass if you don't want to but you have a chance to just reflect in any way you want upon the discussion we had tell me if you liked it if you didn't like it if there's something that you learned from it Um, If there are things we could do to improve it, right? And so this one one girl, I just always remember her, she gets around to her and she goes, I think some of the people in this class aren't taking this very seriously. And she just like (laughs) launched into her. I I never could have said, I mean, I actually believed, I agreed with her about a lot of things, but I I could never have said it. But coming from her, it was great. She's a chastise, her (laughs) classmates. So I, you know, different kids react differently to sort of social uh, pressures.
0: Yeah. But it was really it could never it could never not be helpful at the high school age or it seems to be very effective at elementary age. But the high school age it seems to be crucial to have what we call today some safe space talk about big problems.
1: Oh yeah, um, yeah. I think it, I mean actually I think it goes all, all through schooling because by the time they get to um, middle school or junior high, the kids are facing ser- lots of serious issues. Um, so bullying just being one of them mm-hmm. and they need a place where they can really talk about the issue. I mean, I remember, so I, I worked with a filmmaker on a, a, another website um, where we use clips from popular films and television shows to discuss ethics, ethical issues uh, with the kids, to have the kids talk about ethical issues. And um, so when we were sort of test piloting it, mm-hmm. we went into a school and we just watched and let the teacher lead the discussion and it was just so amazing because they were talking about bullying and um, which is one of the topics we wanted to address. Um, the filmmaker actually was great. She went into a school and she surveyed the kids and she asked, like, what are the most important ethical issues that you have that you face today? And they gave us a list and then we made units, you know based on each of these issues. So one of them, as I said, was on bullying. and at one point, the teacher says something like, but you know, we have all these procedures in place to deal with bullying. And I looked at her and they shook their head like, you are so naive, miss so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Um, don't you realize that the minute we go to the principal's office, all the bullies know? And like, so all these things that you set up are completely irrelevant because we can't use them.
0: Mm.
1: And she was shocked, right? They had They had never told her this, right? But in the context of the philosophy discussion, they felt like they could open up to her in ways that they couldn't before. So I, you know, as you're talking about a safe space, I think it does create that and it allows the kids also to tell the teachers things that they don't know and mm-hmm. that they should know.
0: It's how we solve problems as adults. We list uh, an array of procedures and here's what to follow and here's the steps. Right. The
1: kids don't do that. Well, also, you know, they in this particular case, they said the procedures that you have I mean, they may like good on paper, but you have to understand that there's a whole network Mm -hmm. of communication that you guys are not aware of.
0: Oh, yes. And that we can't
1: counter, right? And so we have to be very careful about what we do in ways that you don't understand. So I think for this teacher, it opened up her eyes to the inadequacies of what they had been doing to deal with the problem of bullying, which was really interesting, um, But i think it's only because there was a space in which the kids felt safe talking to one another
0: yeah it's almost a more productive environment because it's not explicitly about solving the problem it's about what's bothering you why is this happening bigger questions
1: yes yeah you know the whole thing is to just have these abstract discussions and it's not about implementing solutions to deal with the ethical issues that the kids are facing Mm -hmm. i mean we want them i mean they do learn things like even the little kids when they're talking about this book Dragons and Giants the story about courage they start learning that um, just because they're scared they don't have to do something to show that they're not that they're not afraid because that's what brave people do because they come to see that you can be actually most brave people are scared doing brave things and so uh, when a bully sort of taunts you you have alternatives that are available to you that they might not have realized before so I think even at a young age, you can start helping them deal with issues that arise in their lives in ways other than saying, well, here's the solution that we've developed for dealing <laughs> with this, right? You yeah. you say, you can think about this differently than you have been, and then let them figure out what they're going to do.
0: Now, you've written a lot about uh, philosophy and film also. I have, yes. um, And you argue that films are a medium in which philosophy can be done. Or is, <laughs> is that just all around us and we don't think about it? Or are there specific films or a specific subset of films?
1: Yeah, I think it's specific films. Um, so when I started working on uh, this area, uh, films and philosophy, there was very little that was being done by philosophers about film. Um, which I think is characteristic for me. I seem to sort of uh, pursue areas that no one has thought about before. Like <laughs> yesterday, I... Um, Gave a talk here at the university about illustrations of, of philosophy, visual, visual illustrations. It's like, and when I was working on my the book that I hope will eventually come out of that, uh, there's noth- I mean, there's almost nothing that I can refer to. Anyway, but to get back to your question, films. Uh, what I was going to say is that when I was work, when I was when I was uh, started working on that, there was very little that was being written about it. And, uh, or, and very few courses offered in, the, in film and philosophy. But over the years, so that was probably 1990 or so, philosophers have sort of discovered film and realized that you, there's many, many different fil- types of films that, even if they don't have, make a real contribution to the philosophical understanding of an issue, present the issue to people in a way that they can understand much more intuitively. So, um, the example I love using is the matrix Mm -hmm. nowadays students haven't, a lot of them haven't seen it, but you know, when it first came out, it made a big splash. And part of what I thought was really interesting about it is it presented a scenario that was very similar to a scenario that's both in Plato and Descartes about skepticism about the existence of the real world. Mm -hmm. And, um, What was so great about that film, or at least the first part of the film, was that it raised that issue in such a way that it was impossible not to notice it. So you could have students reading Descartes and they were going like, what's going on? And you just say, remember The Matrix? And they all go, oh my God, yes, now I see. You know, it was like, films became great teaching tools. Mm -hmm. And so there was like a whole series of mostly anthologies. uh, And they still exist and there's, somebody's making a lot of money on these things. Uh, which take almost every uh, film or TV series that comes out, and philosophers write about the philosophical issues that they can see in these uh, films or TV series. So I think it's 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 out there in some form in a lot of popular culture. Mm-hmm. The films that I tend to be interested in ones where I think that it's doing something more unique mm-hmm. philosophically. Than many of the other films are, but almost every film, like all, almost all science fiction films raise really interesting questions philosophically. They might show us time travel,
0: mm-hmm. and time oh, right. travel
1: is a great philosophical problem. It really is, and then or they show us like cyborgs or you know robots that seem like they're conscious ex machina. Oh yeah, <laughs> is that thing conscious? You know, it looks like, you know, it can deceive people, so it looks like maybe it's really got consciousness, you know, mm-hmm, yeah. um, it's not following its creator's instructions. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can, you can raise these wonderful issues f- with students, with adults, um, by getting them to look at a film and, you know, we tend even with picture books, I think that, you know, we philosophies, I think you said all around us in ways that we don't notice. And part of what I've been trying to do both in teaching kids, but also uh, in looking at films, is to tell people, you're interested in philosophy even though you don't know it, right? It's there, and that's why you like this film. So you need to actually think about the philosophical issue to really understand what your own experience of the film was and what made it so exciting for you. There are these people who love Blade Runner because Mm -hmm. they love thinking about the question of whether the replicants are really persons, Mm -hmm. right? They're not human, but they could be persons. Right. Um, and therefore have certain moral rights that they're not being accorded in the film, and it's generated lots of philosophical discussion. But even though, you know, forget about philosophers, most people, when they see the film, start thinking about that, think about death, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that the replicants know they're going to die, I think, in five years, right? That's a lifespan, you know? Yeah. Would that change your life? You knew that death was really imminent. Um, How would it change your life?
0: Well, the most puzzling conundrums are the ones that fascinate us the most. Right. Yes. Does it maybe it, introduce, it it gives us some access to those essential questions about what do we want to know? How do we want to live?
1: Yeah. What's what's the meaning of all of it? You know, why are we here?
0: Well keep up with the great work. It's great to learn about this. I appreciate you coming on.
1: Well, well thanks very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.